Okay, great. Uh, hello, thanks very much for coming. Um, I'm James Tilley. I'm a professor of politics at uh, Oxford. I'm going to be chairing tonight's um, discussion. Uh, the reason I'm chairing uh, this, despite the fact I'm not at LSE, is that uh, this is essentially a kind of uh, event that's uh, meant to mark part of our research project, uh, which I'm involved with alongside Sarah Hobelt here and Thomas Leeper, who's sat down at the bottom uh, there. Um, which is uh, essentially looking at public opinion towards the Brexit negotiations, and that's what we're going to actually kick off tonight's discussion uh, with. So we're going to start with three uh, short talks by each of our speakers and then open up for, from questions from the audience um, about half past seven, uh, probably, and then finish about eight o'clock. So we've got three excellent uh, speakers. First up is Professor Zara Hobolt. She's the Sutherland um, Chair in European Institutions at the European Institute uh, here at the LSE. She's written... Uh, a load of books, a load of articles, um, all about, well, not all, but some, mostly about public opinion towards the EU and also referendums um, uh, on the EU, including the British one uh, last year. She's probably the leading academic uh, in this uh, particular area, which is good for us because uh, public opinion is exactly what she's going to talk about um, in a second. Uh, next up is uh, John Rental. He's a chief political commentator for The Independent, also visiting professor at King's College uh, London, uh, the author of a... <laughs> I don't know if there's local rivalry here or not towards King's College London, but there should be because it's very nearby. Um, he's the author of a biography of Tony Blair, also uh, The Band List, which I, uh, <laughs> which I would highly uh, recommend. It updates Orwell's uh, politics and the English language uh, for the modern age, which is, of course, sadly full of politicians and journalists talking about going forward with their game-changing deliverables and other such nonsense. Um, since there's absolutely no shortage of that language when it comes to the uh, Brexit debate, this hopefully leaves uh, John in a good position to discuss the British government's position in the negotiations. Uh, next up is uh, Philippe uh, Legrand. He's currently a visiting fellow at the LSE, but was in previous incarnations a lead advisor to the President of the European Commission, economics correspondent for The Economist magazine, and chief economist for the Britain in Europe uh, group. In between all of that, he's managed to write four uh, thought-provoking books about the intersection between politics and economics, and also found a new think tank, um, Open, an exhausting uh, list, I'm sure you agree. And he's going to be giving us his thoughts on the EU perspective uh, regarding negotiations. Uh, so with that, um, we'll begin. I've got two other things I think I need to say. Uh, this is being recorded, apparently. There's likely to be a podcast available after the event. I don't know why you'd be interested in that, because you're here. So, um, but anyway, there is. Um, the other thing is, I don't really understand what Twitter is, but apparently I need to tell you something that uh, hash LSE Brexit if you understand what Twitter is, that might mean something to you. It doesn't uh, to me. Okay, so sorry, if you'd like to kick off then, please. Thanks. Twitter hasn't quite made it all the way to Oxford yet. So I think that's why. <laughs> okay, so where's the mouse? This, uh, oh, here it is. So um, I will start, as James said, to talk about public opinion. And you might sort of ask, well, why should we uh, care about public opinion? I came here to hear about the Brexit negotiations. I want to know what's going on in Brussels. Um, and, um, and the reason I think uh, that it's important also to look at public opinion, and we are going to look specifically at British public opinion, is that I think it can have um, some significant effects on what's happening in 
uh, in the Brexit negotiation as we go forward. I mean, one thing is, of course, it could inform, and I think it has informed, how the government thinks about its own position. Another thing is for those people hoping to reverse or change the course of uh, Brexit or maybe even hoping that Britain uh, won't be leaving the EU, I think that would require a quite major shift in public opinion uh, also for opposition parties to take um, another line. And, and finally, of course, public opinion will matter in terms of whether the final outcome, whether there is a deal or no deal, uh, will be seen as legitimate and will be accepted. And indeed, it might reshape British politics as we know it. Um, so, with that in mind, I'll just give um, a few, uh, summarize a few slides, a few uh, results from our project on what public opinion looks like right now. Um, on the first question, sort of, you know, what do people think now about Brexit after we have, uh, we are in the midst of the negotiation, it's becoming a reality, and um, is there any bias, remorse, have people changed their minds? And really the sort of headline result, if you can see it here, is just a lot of stability. You will sometimes see sort of excited headlines on this, but the overall, you know, a bit regardless of how you measure it, there hasn't been much change. Most people who voted Remain would still re vote Remain or still think that it's right for Britain to be leaving the European, uh, wrong for people to be leaving the European Union, and vice versa, people who voted to leave think that it's right for Britain uh, to leave the European Union. So there's really been very little shift. Also, if we think about how people then look at what will the consequences be uh, of Britain leaving the European Union, again, we see a huge sli uh, split in the population among, uh, along these lines of leavers and remainers. So for people who voted leave, you can see up here that's the red line, they quite overwhelmingly think that it will have a positive effect on Britain when we leave the European Union. And exactly the opposite for people who voted to remain. And then people who didn't vote, uh, sort of in the middle. I guess maybe that's why they didn't vote. They didn't quite know. Uh, so we see this split, and we can see it along a number of dimensions. This is looking at what will happen to the country. If we look at what will happen to you personally, we also see the split, but it's a lot smaller in the sense that there might be a lot of people who think this will be terrible for Britain, Remainers, the blue line at the bottom, but will it really affect me less so? So we still see a split, but people think it will have a greater positive or negative effect on the country and a smaller effect on themselves. So why we see a lot of stability in how people view Brexit as such and its consequences, there's been quite a lot of fluctuations in other things, in particular how well uh, people think that the government is doing handling this. And this is basically the, the, the yellow and the red line up here is people who think that the government is doing fairly badly or very badly. And we see that's uh, now quite a bit above 60%. The positive swing here, the green line is doing fairly well, was after Theresa May set out her Lancaster speech that was well received. We didn't see a similar bump after the Florence speech. But generally there's this sense amongst leavers, Brexit is a good thing. Amongst Remainers, Brexit is a bad thing, but the government is not really doing a great job at negotiating Brexit. So that means that we really have a stable, atti stable attitudes towards Brexit, but quite divided amongst lines. Of, it's not like the, the population is coming together, uh, but increasingly negative views of how the government is handling it. But that then leads to another question. So the government might not be seen as being the most competent in handling, but really, what about the substance of the negotiations? 
And here I'll show you different pieces of evidence because it can be sort of difficult to get at exactly the substance because people tend to have a wish list. They want free trade, they want more control, more sovereignty, they want a lot of things and, and some people have talked about this is a sort of have your cake and eat it position. So what we try to do in some of our research is trying to get at these trade-offs. Now one sort of general way of looking at this that I'm sure you've seen is this idea of just asking people, well, what would you prioritize, controlling immigration or uh, prioritizing free trade with the EU? That's of course one of the trade-offs um, and one that's been politicized quite a lot. And here you can see the sort of now familiar split with leavers up here prioritizing controlling immigration and remainers down here prioritizing um, free trade with the EU and again people who didn't vote here in the middle. Now that's obviously as I said one of the trade-offs but there are also other ways, other aspects to the negotiations and so one thing we did was to run something that's called a conjoint experiment where you basically present people with bundles of options. So you say along a, 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 a several dimensions, so the Irish border the divorce payment to the EU, immigration, uh, controlling uh, you know, legal sovereignty in terms of ECD and so on. If you present people with different bundles and say, would you take bundle A or bundle B, and ask them several times, you get uh, a sense of their revealed preferences. In other words, what really matters when you're presented with a lot of different uh, choices uh, where, where choices are bundled together. Now, this is very small, uh, that's deliberate, so I can tell you uh, how you should read it. Um, and, and basically, uh, here we've split leavers and remainers, um, and these are all the different features of the options. Uh, but the sort of takeaway is that there are certain issues that leavers care quite a lot about. Um, they won't come as a big surprise to you in the sense that these were the kind of issues that were salient in the campaign. It is mainly controlling immigration. Um, not being subject to the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice and not paying a divorce payment. We didn't call it a divorce payment because that's a little uh, politically sort of a, uh, biased maybe too, but we called it a settlement bill. Uh, and, uh, but you can see that people don't want to pay, they certainly don't want to pay 70 million, but they're a bit more billion uh, euros or pounds. Uh, but so, so that's quite negative. And actually that's quite negative as you can see across leavers and remainers. There's not sort of, there's not like remainers are standing up in the queue thinking we would like to pay this settlement bill. So that's, when you look at remainers then, uh, what do remainers really care about when it comes to choosing between these bottle, uh, bundles of uh, negotiation outcomes? What they really tend to care about is citizens' rights. So EU citizens' rights in the UK and UK citizens' rights in the EU. There's also a general preference towards uh, more free trade with the EU and that's really the same for leavers and remainers, although remainers care slightly more about it. And then we have some issues that are not very salient. One is the Irish border. It's not a particular salient issue uh, to citizens in our survey. And the other one is when this takes place, in other words, a trans the timeline or whether or not there's a transition deal. And again, this doesn't seem to be a deal breaker. So in that sense, you could see that, say that sort of Theresa May was right when she said, oh, you, we can have another two years. That would not be a kind of deal breaker, also not to leave us. That's one way of, of studying this thing. Another study led by um, 
Anthony Heath at uh, Oxford and Manchester did a sort of similar thing, but not with this uh, particular methodology, but basically asking people to pretend they were negotiators and saying, okay, now you're an EU negotiator, what would be the sort of things uh, that you would be, would be a red line? Uh, what would be the kind of things you'd be willing to drop? And again, a series of, of issues here to try and get at these trade-offs that the government, our government, is uh, facing in Brussels. And here again, this is then what are the red lines for citizens, again split by Remain supporters and Leave supporters. And interestingly, we find that a sort of the key red, line, uh, red lines for Leavers is to end ECJ jurisdiction um, and to end contribution to the EU budget and also freedom of movement come here in as a third and to ensure UK citizens' rights. But here it's not split. That's, that's a common position amongst uh, Remainers and Leavers. Again, we find that <coughs> Remainers are also not terribly keen on, on paying, but less so. And we find a split on immigration. Uh, and also we find that Remainers care more about um, continued collaboration and maintain single market access, but whereas Leavers uh, really care mainly about, um, uh, about budget and legal sovereignty and immigration. I think it came a bit of surprise to them that immigration wasn't a sort of top issue here, the fact that, that this issue of the ECJ mattered. Of course, as I'm sure we'll hear later, this is important because it matters in, order to, uh, in terms of what kind of a relationship we can have um, in terms of trade, whether or not we are subject to the ECJ or not. But so that, uh, and interestingly, it sort of suggests, I think, that a lot of the substance of Theresa May's position seems to be very much in line with these opinions. Now you can say that might be because people indeed have fallen in behind her sort of leadership and taking cues from her, but certainly that's what we find in these two very different studies. Um, so in terms of just what's salient, again we find that what's really salient to leave us in the negotiations is the ECJ, the budget immigration, what's really salient to remain us is EU citizens' rights and UK citizens' rights and trade. And some issues are just less salient like the Irish border and the timeline. And there are outcomes that tend to be more popular, like, again, as I said, ending uh, the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice, not paying very much to the EU uh, when we leave, um, having greater immigration control, or this is really an issue where people, Remainers and Leavers are more divided, that's a key dividing line, and continue free trade with the EU, which both Remainers and Leavers think is a great thing, um, uh, but it's less salient. I just wanted to put that one slide in because I think there's not really a lot in this debate about what people, it's like we're negotiating with ourselves here in the UK and what the EU does is sort of secondary. But of course that's quite important. And, um, and this is a survey done by Professor Stephanie Walter in Zurich just looking at what do people in other EU countries think. Do they think, oh, let's just give the Brits what they want or not? And here we find that there's a clear majority for sort of taking a quite hard line as opposed to a softer line amongst the populations in the rest of Europe. Perhaps not surprisingly, but it's good to keep in mind that we're obviously not negotiating just within the Tory cabinet, but also with another partner. Now, the very final thing I want to talk about is what are these opinions like? In a sense, has Brexit given rise to a new identity? Has Brexit given rise to a new way of, of how we think about politics in Britain? And what we find is there's really been an emergence of a 
of a new political fault line. And one thing we asked was just to ask people the same way we ask people about their partisanship, you know, do you think of yourself as a conservative, as a, as, uh, as a labor supporter? We asked them, do you think of yourself as a lever or remainer or neither, or don't know? And we do find that over a third of people think of themselves as leavers quite consistently since the referendum. Over a third think of themselves as remainers. But there's the quite remarkably high numbers that are similar to those who feel they have a partisan identity. And we also then looked at how does that shape how we think of other people? You know, it's just sort of, I say I'm a leaver, but it's not that I think differently about leavers or remainers. But we found very stark differences in how we look at other people depending on whether they're leavers and the remainers. So this is, again, sort of standard questions that we also use to look at how partisans look at each other. And here we can see that amongst leavers, they're likely to think of other leavers as honest, intelligent, and open-minded, but remainers as hypocritical, selfish, and close-minded. But it's not that the remainers are any more sort of open-minded of the other group. Indeed, it's an exact, as you can see, uh, the opposite. Remainers think of themselves as honest, intelligent, and open-minded, and they think of leavers as hypocritical, selfish, and close-minded. Yeah? And I think you know, this gap, again, if we compare it to partisan, uh, partisan sort of uh, divisions, it's very similar and it's very stark for a sort of new emergent identity to see this. So just to conclude then, how might these trends and dividing light in public opinion, how might they affect the negotiation? Well, my first point is that really, because Brexit, opinions towards whether or not Brexit was right or wrong has remained so stable, I think that means it also leaves less chance of really that the opposition is going to take a radically different um, uh, position on whether or not to challenge uh, the government. Of course, it, the government is in a weak position in Parliament, and if it was that we saw some major shift towards no Brexit, it's really a terrible idea, we should reverse the thing, then there might be greater incentives, I think, for the Labour Party, for example, to go out and, and take a different position on that. But as this is not the case, in a sense, sort of a more ambiguous position might be seen as more electorally advantageous, plus the idea of holding a second referendum when the country is so divided um, I think it's not, not appealing uh, to Parliament or indeed more generally because it's just likely to sort of rehash and replay the same, um, along the same lines uh, as last time. Also, the government is seen as not doing a great job on this, but that doesn't mean that all the positions that the government take are necessarily unpopular. It does seem that there's certainly broad support for uh, elements of legal sovereignty, immigration control, and continued free trade with the EU, some people might argue that's because uh, they don't know how bad it's going to get. But I guess none of us know really whether or how bad it's going to get. So this is how opinion looks now. And finally, just it seems that Brexit certainly for now has become a new political identity. And I think that has various consequences. First of all, of course, it can have consequences in terms of a realignment of the political landscape. But more generally, it will also affect how people interpret the information when things perhaps start changing. So let's say we have an economic downturn. Based on these identities, we would think that people who are Remainers will think, well, this is terrible, this is Brexit, this is all due to Brexit, whereas people who are Leavers will think, well, uh, not really. I mean, this is the EU's fault. You know, they messed with us and didn't try to punish us. And um, so, so we, we know from partisan identities that how we blame or credit uh, political actors for 
for events is really influenced by these sort of political identities. So we might see a split in even how, uh, how the way in which Brexit unfolds, how that's interpreted by people on the basis of this. And this could mean that there might be uh, a long-term shift, uh, split in British public opinion, or it might, of course, be something that uh, eventually becomes part of just British party politics, um, as we know. But we will move over to the real experts on British party politics uh, and government to tell us more about that. Thank you. Stand up there, you can sit here. Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks, Sarah. Oh, I was going to <laughs> <laughs> Okay, over to you, John. Um, thank you. Thank you very much, James. Thanks, Sarah. Um, I, uh, I looked around the panel to see who the villain was and uh, realised that, of course, <laughs> it's me. Um, uh, I'm, I'm the closest to a Brexiter that uh, the LSE could get, I think, um, because you know, I, was, I was a Remainer, but I was a sort of 52, 52 sort of 48 uh, Remainer. Because uh, I, uh, you know, I can I can understand the appeal of uh, of leaving the European Union. I don't uh, I, I I don't like the European Union. I especially hate the European Parliament, um, and I think there are many good reasons why we we shouldn't be uh, in the European Union. Um, so I'm available for you to boo and hiss at if uh, if necessary. Um, I mean, just be, just before I, I I start, I mean, Sarah did say that she thought most people agreed that the, the idea of a second referendum was not appealing. Um, Chair, could I uh, ask for a show of hands on who wants to see a second referendum? Yeah, you see it's... Uh, I mean, I don't want to do a divisive sort of remain versus, versus leave uh, vote, but uh, uh, that, was, that was more than, more than a quarter, which I think is what the, the opinion poll suggests, is about you know, 22% want, uh, want a second referendum and think, you know, want, want Brexit to be reversed. Um, <clears throat> Which is not a position I hold. So you can all uh, you can all boo and hiss as much as you <laughs> as much as you like, um, uh, because you know, I've, I've got a confession to make, which is that I've got a chronic problem uh, of feeling sympathy for people in power. Um, I actually think that David Cameron was right to hold the referendum. Uh, I think it was right and democratic. It was uh, it was necessary for the country. I could see lots of shaking heads. Um, I think it was, it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the decision that I, I wanted or, or expected, but I think it's a decision that, that has to be respected. Uh, and I now have the peculiar sensation of uh, feeling uh, sympathy for Theresa May. I think she has handled a very weak bargaining position uh, about as well as, as she can. I mean, she's often criticised for, uh, for mishandling the negotiations, and we saw that uh, the general public take a low, uh, have a low opinion of the government's competence in handling the negotiations. That's not a surprise. Opinion polls... I mean, what was surprising was that, uh, that, that people thought the government was handling the Brexit negotiations well uh, early on in, this, in, this, in, the, uh, in the scenario. Um, but... Uh, I think Theresa May has tried to implement the uh, results of the referendum, which was the democratic uh, choice of the British people, whatever you uh, personally may, may think of it. Um, and the fact that she is constantly criticised for having triggered Article 50 too early and for not being clear about what she wants, I think is a very 
British-centered uh, um, view. Um, it was Tony Jutt who said the, the English are the only people who are capable of feeling uh, schadenfreude about their own, uh, their own misfortunes. Um, we do like wallowing in how terrible we are and how it's all our fault uh, that we have uh, got ourselves into this position and have negotiated so badly. The truth is that by leaving the European Union, you automatically put yourself in a very weak uh, bargaining position. Um, and that I think, I think it's patronising to suggest that the British people didn't know that when they voted to leave. I think they accepted that there would be a short-term cost, possibly, uh, to leaving, and undoubtedly there will be. I mean, I personally think there'll be a long-term cost as well, but I, I can see that in the long term people might think that there are benefits, uh, benefits to be gained. So I think, um, uh, although obviously calling the election was a disastrous mistake, that wasn't what people said at the time she called it, it was a masterstroke, um, and people thought she was, um, she was being bold and, uh, and, and, and right, but uh, it obviously backfired on her. But that aside, I think the government is handling a difficult position uh, about as well as it, uh, as it can do. Um, I'm not particularly optimistic about the outcome, but I'm not, um, I'm not particularly pessimistic either. I mean, even uh, a, a no-deal Brexit, which everybody agrees would be a complete catastrophe in the country, I suspect wouldn't be as bad as, as all that. Um, we would be uh, poorer than we, might, than we would otherwise be, but whether we, would, whether we would be significantly poorer than we are now, I think, is, uh, I, I think is doubtful. I think, I think Brexit is actually going to be a huge anticlimax. I think nobody will notice very much. I think the main uh, public response to it is going to be a sense of disappointment that nothing's really changed. Uh, because I think um, the people who voted, for, voted leave did expect um, large sums of money to come back from Brussels and to be spent on the public services, and that was obviously uh, never going to happen. Um, so I think that sense of disappointment uh, will be around, but uh, by then it'll be too late to, um, to change the decision, because as Sarah said, public opinion has been completely... Uh, not quite static. There has been a very slight move towards, um, towards the Remain position since the referendum. Uh, but the only way that Brexit can be stopped uh, would be if there is a second referendum. And the only way you're going to get a second referendum is if public opinion turns decisively uh, against Brexit. And I just don't see that happening uh, before Brexit. And I actually don't see it happening um, for some time afterwards either. Anyway. Hey, thanks so much. Or yours, please. Well, it's great to be here with you um, amid such a distinguished panel. Now, Britain is engaged in a fevered debate about Brexit, in which the EU perspective, uh, as Sarah said, is often ignored uh, or misunderstood, which is a huge blind spot because one thing I agree uh, with John about uh, is that the EU has the whip hand in the negotiations. The underlying problem, which also helps explain why 52% you know, of Britons voted for leave uh, in the first place, is Brexiteers 
delusion of grandeur. They think they're superior to other Europeans, that they were doing the EU a favor by being a member, and therefore that they deserve special treatment, not just within the EU, but also after they leave. And the thing is, EU membership reinforced that delusion. As a leading member of the EU, the UK had a huge sway of the direction of the EU. When it disagreed with what the EU wanted to do, it secured opt-outs on the euro uh, or Schengen. And thanks to its membership of the EU, it had oversized economic importance as an investment hub and political importance as an interlocutor for the US, China, and others. Yet Brexiteers became convinced uh, that the EU was holding Britain back and that going, alone, going it alone would make Britain stronger. And that's reflected in the Brexit negotiations with the belief that the EU needs Britain more than vice versa or the fatuous notion that the deep and special partnership with the EU that Theresa May is seeking is somehow a partnership of equals. Yet nothing could be further from the truth. Britain is going from being a leading player in an economic superpower to being a marginal player on the doorstep of an economic superpower. And even to call the Brexit negotiations divorce talks, and I confess that I've done it, is misleading because it wrongly suggests some kind of parity. In fact, it's 26, 27 countries against one. 455 million people against 65 million. A $14.5 trillion economy versus a $2.5 trillion economy. A global rule maker against a prospective rule taker. A legal and regulatory order that will be unchanged on Brexit Day against one that would be turned into turmoil without an exit and transition deal. And while Brexit is an all-consuming obsession for the UK, for the EU27, it's just one of many issues and not even the most pressing. And the belief that Britain can nonetheless divide and rule is delusional. In terms of the exit deal, yes, Ireland it would be much, much harder hit, cares much more about the Irish border. But the EU27 all care about their citizens' rights and whether they are net contributors or net beneficiaries to the EU budget. They all care about the financial settlement. Now, it's true that in terms of the future trade deal, the EU27 have very, very different export priorities. And some are much more liberal than others. But that diversity is a problem for the UK, not an advantage, because a trade deal would require unanimity, which means that even the most recalcitrant and protectionist countries have to be satisfied. And even the likes of the regional parliament of Wallonia could block any deal. 
And don't think that Angela Merkel is going to ride to the rescue because of Germany's trade surplus with the UK. The integrity of the single market and the future of the EU matter much, much more, not just to her, but to German business. So all this boasting about being the fifth biggest economy, not to mention harking back to empire and the Second World War, is misplaced. Because while the Brexit negotiations aren't quite take it or leave it for the UK, they're take it or leave it among a small set of options defined by the EU 27. So what Boris Johnson wants, or Philip Hammond thinks, is relevant only insofar as it can shape the broad choice between those options. So, that, for, example, for example, they can sway whether or not Britain seeks a transition deal. They cannot influence the contents of that transition deal. Now, basically, Britain faces three choices. Does it want an exit deal that avoids legal and trade chaos? In which case, it has to agree to pretty much everything that the EU is demanding on citizens' rights, the Irish border, and the financial settlement. Does the UK want a transition deal that provides time to negotiate a future trade deal, that provides time for businesses to prepare and adjust, and that avoids a cliff edge on the 29th of March, 2019? In which case, it must agree to the EU's terms, which is basically a standstill agreement for the term that the EU decides, where pretty much everything stays the same except that the UK loses its voting rights. And that means no latitude to ignore new ECJ judgments and no registering of EU migrants unless all UK citizens have to register. And looking forward, does the UK want to join the European economic area along with Norway? Or does it want to seek a free trade agreement along the lines of the one with Canada? Now, of course, every trade agreement is in a sense bespoke. But it will be bespoke only in the details. The broad choice is between Norway or Canada. The two options that Theresa May rejected in Florence. Now, if you're mathematically minded, you'll think, okay, well, there's, a there's three sets of pretty much binary choices. So there's two times two times two, eight possible Brexits. But actually, some of those combinations disappear. <coughs> if there's no exit deal, there will be no transition or future trade deal either. If there's no transition, it's pretty unlikely that there'll be an exit deal because the, the UK will probably find it politically impossible to pay what the, what the EU is demanding uh, without the prospect of future single market benefits. So it's more or less a choice between the two polar opposites, an exit deal on EU terms with a time-limited standstill transition. We could call it a smooth Brexit, or a chaotic no-deal one.
Now, if it's a chaotic no-deal Brexit, there won't be a trade agreement with the EU anytime soon. If it's a smooth Brexit, the most likely outcome is a Canadian-style FTA that enables Britain to take back control of migration, limit the role of the ECJ. It would provide, most likely, continued tariff-free access for UK goods exports. But it would also involve the imposition of costly customs controls, rules of origin requirements, and here, what is not recognized in Britain, very limited access for the services exports in which Britain specializes. Not least, but not only, financial ones. And while the Canadian deal is the most ambitious that the EU has concluded with a non-member, it will be a huge step back for the UK, which currently enjoys the benefits of being a full member of the single market and the customs union. And when that reality dawns, when the trade talks finally start, perhaps next year, it will become a further hurdle to securing an exit and transition deal because even full compliance with the EU's demands will not win the UK much better access for services than Canada. Now, if there's a smooth Brexit, it's also possible that, at, that the cliff edge at the end of the transition will make the Norway option seem more attractive. Immigration may be less a big deal by then. If you're European, you may have left by then. And while Norway has to accept single market regulations, it's able to strike its own trade deals with the rest of the world. So Liam Fox would have a job to do. But the Norway option is probably not politically sustainable indefinitely. So it would probably prompt a move to try to rejoin the EU, which of course could happen from any of the other options as well. In short then, the, the main Brexit options are quite simple. A chaotic no-deal Brexit, a smooth transition to Canada, or a smooth transition to Norway. There is, of course, the slim possibility of stopping Brexit. In the UK, that would require a big shift in public opinion, which Sarah's research shows there hasn't been, and it would require, of course, the calling of a second referendum and the winning of it. But what's also missing in the UK debate is that it, it would also require the agreement of the EU to accept the withdrawal of the Article 50 notification. Now, it's not clear that is possible legally, but nor is it explicitly forbidden. So the decision would be a political one by the European Council. And while it would be a huge propaganda coup for the EU if the UK decided, after all, to stay, there'd also be many EU leaders who'd be reticent because they're thoroughly fed up with the Brexiteers' antics, with the nasty nativism of citizens of the world or citizens of nowhere. And the prospect of continued bad behavior under the current government and being told to go whistle and all the other nonsense. And also, more selfishly, 
There'd be the desire to steal a comp comp competitive advantage in finance, in cars, or elsewhere. So on balance, it may be likely that the EU leaders would ultimately accept uh, a UK withdrawal of Article 50. It's not a foregone conclusion. What is a foregone conclusion is that the delusion peddled by the likes of Tony Blair and Nick Clegg that the EU would agree to compromise on freedom of movement to keep Britain in, that was something the EU was not prepared to give to David Cameron before the referendum and certainly won't give to Theresa May. Thank you. Okay, thanks very much. Uh, a somewhat rosy and rather bleak assessment there, which I guess perhaps fits with Sarah's first slide. Um, so now we've got about uh, 40 minutes or so for questions. I've got a few questions, but if there's anyone who'd like to kick off, and I think we've got some roving microphones. Uh, so that chap there, I think, was first. And we'll Hi. take a few questions, I think, and then ask the panel to respond. Sure. Thank you very much for that, uh, all four of you. Uh, that was very informative. This question directed mostly at uh, Philippe. Philippe, um, if you forgive the ever-so-slight impertinence, I wondered if you've ever been to post-industrial communities in the north of England and what you might say to working-class communities who feel that Europe hasn't delivered anything for them and that globalisation has left them... Uh, citizens of nowhere wondered what your answer might be to uh, those communities so we'll take another couple of questions perhaps uh, maybe nearby there's a lady at the back there hi thank you all very much um i am a remainer and so thank you john for taking one for the team and being the pantomime villain um having seen that public opinion isn't changing, which is contrary to what my left-leaning social media bubble tells me. Um, <laughs> you said you thought there might be some benefits, so could you give me some hope and explain what you think those benefits might be? Okay, we'll just take one final question. I think there's a chap right in the middle here, I'm afraid. Thank you. Uh, I've actually remained as well. <laughs> now, the, this is really on the public opinion issue. I noticed that one of the areas where, where there was very strong opinions among the leavers was, was coming out from under the jurisdiction of the ECJ. It's just that I wonder how clear in the minds of the, of the people being questioned was the distinction between the ECJ and the ECHR. Because... Certainly during the Leave campaign, the Leavers were certainly conflating the two courts uh, and, 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 and confusing people on this. Uh, and and I'm, I, 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 the ECJ have not actually... We've not, we've not been subject to many harsh decisions by the ECJ, in my memory. So I'm not, I'm not so sure that, that, that people... Uh, really understood the question. Okay, great. So three quite succinct questions. Thank you. So I think feel free to kind of respond to any of those different points, although some I know were addressed for particular panellists. So I don't know if you want to take it, Sarah, first and then work our way down. Oh, well, just on, on, the, on the last question there for me, I mean, I don't 
I mean, studying public opinion, we're sort of not, certainly not arguing that this is a, a very sort of sophisticated understanding on everyone on either side that people know exactly what ECDA jurisdiction means. But I think that's not really important because what it does mean that you have this public opinion is that there is a sense, and that was also a sense that was mobilized and expressed in the referendum campaign, which is that we want to be able to make our own laws. Whether or not those are the laws that are particular ECD or particular uh, European Court of Human Rights, I mean, I think there is that sense that if, in a sense, Theresa May were to go back and say, well, we're leaving the EU, but we're still under, you know, the the ECDA will still ultimately be the ultimate arbiter of any conflict. I think she would have a hard time with it. I think we were, as I said, uh, perhaps surprised how much it mattered because there's been a lot of talk of that it's all about immigration and so on. So the fact that it is as salient as it is came, I think, to, uh, as a surprise to many of the research teams. But it clearly is uh, salient, and I think it's because it resonates with uh, the very powerful slogan of taking back control. And part of taking back control is to have legal sovereignty. Does that mean everyone can distinguish between the two courts? Probably not. But, but I think uh, it is that sentiment that informs much of that opinion. Um, well, yes, I was being asked to explain the benefits of uh, leaving the European Union. Um, and I think that's what it comes down to. It's, it's sovereignty. And I think... The, 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 the question about knowing the difference between the ECJ and the ECHR is not really relevant because uh, people may not understand the, the distinction, they may not, but they may not know which court has said that we have to give votes to prisoners. But they can understand the principle of a country being able to decide its own laws. And, it's, you know, I mean, I remember this during the, during the um, referendum campaign it was very difficult to get uh, levers to point to a single decision by the uh, European Court of Justice, which they disagreed with and they thought was, was the wrong decision and should have been, should have been different. Uh, because it's not about the decisions. It's not about the decisions. It's about the, it's about the principle. And it's the same with, same with immigration. People say that, I mean, obviously some people care about immigration, but other people care about the principle of being a nation is, is having the right to decide who comes into your country and who doesn't. And I feel that very strongly. I feel that um, quite deeply. And if it weren't for the other arguments, that's why I would have been, uh, I would have been prepared to vote leave. Uh, but I was I actually, you know, once again, fatally sympathetic to Theresa May's arguments. I agreed entirely with her. She wrote an article explaining why she was on balance in favour of Remain. Uh, there was the economic argument, which I think is a very strong one. Uh, there was um, Scotland, which was, again, a very, a very strong one, and, again, one I feel, I feel deeply. I mean, in the Scottish referendum, I was very surprised because I thought I didn't really care about that, uh, but I was surprised to discover that I did care about it. I wanted Scotland to remain part of my country because I, I went to school there. I spent some of my childhood in, in Scotland. Um, and, uh, you know, since the referendum... Um, the, the Scottish opinion hasn't, hasn't shifted, and that's one of the reasons why I think if there was a second referendum, I wouldn't necessarily vote, vote Remain, because um, the Scottish argument isn't, isn't as important as it was. So, you know, if you don't feel um, in your gut that being, a, being an independent nation is important to you, then you won't understand 
the, the, the mentality of leavers. You'll say, oh, well, you know, they, they've all been bamboozled by slogans and take back control and all that. It's a very deep and human instinct, which I, uh, which I share, uh, but for me it was, it, was, it was counterbalanced by the economic arguments and the arguments about Scotland. Thanks. Um, just before you, sorry, just before you, you might be interested to know actually on the kind of public opinion data, what we found on immigration was that people were much more concerned with uh, controlling, uh, i.e. the British government having controls over immigration than they were actually about levels. And so that very much accords with what you're saying. Anyway, sorry, Philip. Um, Britain is an independent nation within the EU and it is a sovereign nation within the EU and it's showing that sovereignty by choosing, unfortunately, uh, to leave. Um, I find this kind of dis discussion about sovereignty uh, in the abstract kind of either naive or just plain stupid. <laughs> on the really basic things that matter, on the really basic things that matter, whether it's taxation, whether it's spending, whether it's what's a crime and what's not, or indeed whether one stays in the EU or not, Britain is sovereign. In the area where uh, it is pooled sovereignty within the EU, which is mostly the area that deals with the economic interaction between states, if Britain is going to continue uh, to trade with others, uh, it has a choice. Either it aligns itself basically with EU regulations, which it previously had a say in setting, or it will have to align itself with US regulations, which it certainly had no say in setting, and that, which are therefore um, far, far detached from, in most cases, the preferences of the British people. The idea that it's somehow going to be uh, an island, a global Britain that's trading everywhere and yet setting its own regulations, as I said, is either delusional or stupid. And in Leon, Co Leon Co Fox's case, it's definitely stupid. Um, so tell me what exactly, I mean, apart from limiting immigration, and Leavers always say it's not really about immigration, it's about the principle of sovereignty. Tell me exactly what the really, really important things uh, that Britain uh, is going to be able to take back control of. That's the, I think that's a really fundamental point rather than ducking behind sovereignty. In terms of the impact of working class communities, I feel very, very sad for them. I feel very, very sad for them because they have been neglected uh, by successive governments, both Conservative uh, and Labour, um, uh, and they have been conned uh, by the likes of Boris Johnson, who doesn't give a damn about them, uh, and his fellow Brexiteers, into thinking that um, the solution to their, their misfortune and to the fact that they're not listened to is somehow leaving the EU. Leaving the EU is going to make Britain poorer, and it's going to make uh, the working class communities that voted leave poorer too both directly in terms of uh, less trade uh, and worse paid jobs uh, and, and indirectly because there will be uh, less tax, taxation money around and therefore less to spend uh, on uh, public services uh, and benefits in those areas because they will lose, if they're poor enough, the access to structural funds uh, and cohesion funds and don't think the UK government's going to replace them because regional spending in the UK has never been um, uh, that high uh, because they'll lose... Uh, access to the benefits of EIB investment uh, and other things. Um, so it's very, it's, it's tragically sad. You know, the working class communities, their anger is completely understandable. The EU is not to blame for their plight and leaving the EU is going to make their plight worse. Okay, we'll take another round of questions now. Um, 
Before we do that, I should add class divisions in attitudes towards EU integration have been around since the 1960s and haven't changed much. So I'm not sure it's a new thing, but anyway. Um, so uh, if we have this chap here in the green jumper. My question is about this issue of money, uh, which seems to be fairly big and they can't get past to get on to the next stage, seeing as we have another two years to keep on negotiating. Surely the money, there are legal commitments and they can be worked out, so you just need chartered accountants, both EU and, and U, UK, and they can decide exactly what sums are liable, they're liable for at the end of the Brexit. Okay, thanks. Uh, this, this chap in the white shirt's had his hand up for ages, so... Uh. And we'll have a round of questions from the balcony, sorry, after this round, if that's okay. Right. Thank you very much. Uh, let's assume, however slow things are going at the moment, that negotiations are completed um, and that there is a consensus that maybe we shouldn't have a second referendum. We've had enough already. My question is this. What happens if Parliament rejects the eventual outcome of the negotiations, notwithstanding the uh, view that the uh, other 27 parliaments might have some to say on the matter, and the European Parliament. What happens then? Okay, great. Um, well, this, this chap's nearby, so... <laughs> First a statement, then a question. Oftentimes these panel discussions have four people who all have the same opinion. And whoever organizes, I want to thank you for not having four people with the identical opinion. You can thank Sarah. She'll well done. <laughs> uh, my question is, I'm from Canada, and oftentimes uh, in Canada we, we experience that young people don't vote. So we end up with conservative governments, and we had conservative governments for a very long period of time, and young people felt that they weren't spoken for, weren't, weren't uh, represented in government. In the analysis of whether anything changed as far as uh, people, how people would vote today, did you look at how people who didn't vote, especially young people, whether they might have voted given the results? Okay, maybe that's a good point to start on, perhaps. Um, uh, yes, so, so on that final question, I mean, as, as I'm, I'm sure you know, there was uh, quite an age gap. I mean, in terms of the sort of demographic gaps in the vote, the biggest ones were age and education. And young people uh, were much more likely to vote Remain and also were much more likely to say they intended to vote Remain of those who then didn't end up voting. So in that sense, we see that split. If you do a sort of analysis assuming that young people would have voted with the same sort of Remaini split, uh, the Remaini biases as the ones who did, but at the same rate, turnout rate, as older people who are much more likely to turn out, that still wouldn't have given a different result. I mean, it would have made it closer, but not a different result. I mean, that's not enough uh, 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 young people. It's interesting if you go then to the last general election that it seemed that... that the Brexit might have had a sort of mobilizing effect because they actually saw a higher proportion of young people turning out to vote. But still, they vote less in general than older people, and they are much more remain. Um, just briefly on the two other points, on the sort of money question, I mean, the government did take legal advice, and although that legal advice uh, was split, the majority opinion that came out was one that 
uh, Britain is not legally committed uh, or obliged to pay a settlement payment. However, I think ultimately this is a political question, and I think Philippe uh, outlined that very you know, rightly, that if Britain doesn't pay more or less what the EU wants, they won't get a trade deal. So, uh, so while I don't think it's a legal question, oh, you know, they should just pay whatever, it's a political question, and it's one, you know, how much do you want to pay for a trade deal? And I think if you compare those sums, probably you know, an economist would certainly tell you then it's worth paying the money. However, as we, you saw in, uh, in the public opinion data that we showed you, it's not a popular one. So it's one uh, that, that the, it's sort of the government would have to manage those expectations. I think that's partly what Theresa May tried to do in Florence in the sense she said, well, uh, we'll, ha we'll pay something. Yeah? Uh, but, but I think legally that's not really the issue. And just finally on, on the parliaments, what happens if parliament rejected? I think John will, uh, will have more to say on that. But it's an odd position that parliament is in, as I see it, because it's one where if they reject it, uh, they are in a sense saying then there is also no deal. So if they reject the deal, we end up in a situation where the clock is simply running out. Then the question would be, would the EU then allow, and maybe Philippe can reflect more on that, would the EU then allow the negotiations to continue? But it's not at an, in a, an attractive position to be in for Parliament if they want to reject it on the basis that they wanted a softer Brexit or something. On the EU, 27 other EU parliaments, on the Article 50 deal, uh, because it probably not going to be in a kind of, uh, in the technical term, a mixed agreement. The other uh, EU parliaments would not need to vote. Only the European Parliament has a veto, not all national parliaments. But on a future trade agreement, as Philippe said, uh, it's a different matter where other national parliaments will most likely get a vote. Okay, great. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree with Sarah about, the, about what happens uh, when Parliament comes to vote, because I think it will be clear when it does come to vote that, the old, that if Parliament... Uh, rejects the deal, then we leave without a, without, without a deal because um, I, th I think that will, be, that will be the government's position and that will be made clear uh, beforehand. So I don't think Parliament will reject the deal if, it, uh, if there is a deal for it to, uh, to, to approve. Um, uh, on, the, uh, on the money, um, I'm, I'm not an expert. I mean, basically, they, you know, it, it just depends on whether... I mean, the, the, the whole of these negotiations are really a, a, a charade. I mean, the point is we will get whatever deal the EU decides we can have in the end, um, and uh, they will have to decide whether, you, you know, how much money they can ask. I mean, that's one reason why I think the Norway model is out of the question, because as, as we saw from the, from the public opinion uh, in, uh, data, um, paying into the EU budget is even more unpopular uh, than allowing continuing free movement of people. Um, so, uh, you know, I think, I think the Norway option is, is a non-starter because that involves paying, I mean, as well as free movement of people, it involves paying uh, into the EU uh, budget and not getting, uh, not getting a say in, re in return. Uh, so I think um, it's the Canadian model for us. Um, <laughs> it's... Uh, uh, our, friend, our friend from Canada can tell us how, how good that will be, uh, because Canada's a lovely country. Um, the young people may not vote, but it's a very nice country, and we'll be, uh, we'll be fine. <laughs> or will we? Because <laughs> I have a feeling you might not answer that in the same way. I mean, you know, we could also shift to a thing where the England trades with Scotland on the basis of 
uh, the Canadian model and we'd see what disruption it would do to two integrated economies, to two economies trading with all sorts of bar- trade barriers between them. So when the likes of John Redwood say it's fine for Canada, well, yeah, it can- it's fine for Canada, it's an improvement for Canada. It doesn't matter that much for Canada because the EU is not its biggest trading partner, the US is, and it's an improvement for Canada because it's going from no trade deal, trading on WTO rules, to uh, better trade access. If you, it is your main trading partner on your doorstep and you are going from trading completely freely uh, to trading um, uh, less freely, then the impact is, is very different. In terms of your question about um, the impact of, of Parliament uh, rejecting whatever deal is agreed, um, uh, unless uh, it were also to bring about a chain of events that led the UK government to withdraw the Article 50 notification, i.e. perhaps the government were to fall and national unity government were, were, were formed purely to vote that uh, decision. You know, these are hypotheticals, but, you know, we, we had a crazy couple of years, so why not? Um, unless, unless that kind of scenario comes about, then, yeah, we do, we do just leave without a deal. Okay, great. So I think we'll take three questions from the, from the balcony uh, now. Uh, and there are four people with their hands up, so how about him there? Yes, the EU is a return to the corn laws of the 1840s, has, has anybody down there who's in favour of the EU uh, considered when they did their Economics 101? And can they explain to us when they managed to disprove Adam Smith's wealth of nations and free trade? And can you please answer that question? Thank you. Okay. <laughs> so, so do you want to restate that again? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I did, sorry, I just didn't quite well, catch the end. Okay, in the 1840s we had a thing called the Corn Laws. Sure which was protectionism, okay? Where basically landowners, the aristocracy, imposed very high prices on things like food and all products. The EU is a return to the Corn Laws, okay? It's anti-free trade, anti-world free trade. It's for protectionism. It was founded mainly by um, the steel and arms manufacturers, principally of Germany, Okay, and we've now, you, you have people here proposing, saying the EU is in favour of free trade. The EU is anti-free trade. It enriches the top 1% and it impoverishes the remaining 99%. Now, you guys may be getting very nice subsidies from the EU. <laughs> okay, Grant, so, so basically I think what you're saying then is, is essentially, is, is the EU really about free trade or not? And we'll no, I'm, just, no I'm simply saying, would you please explain to us why the EU is supposedly free trade when, if you remember, when you did Economics 101 and Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, it taught you, or should have taught you, that free trade is good and that protectionism, which is what the EU is all about, is bad. Okay, grand. Um, so, uh, how about this, this fella down here? On the uh, question of the Irish border, obviously the British population, uh, and from your uh, surveys, don't really give it damn... Um, and uh, the two options outlined of uh, Norway and uh, Canada sound pretty, pretty abysmal uh, as far as the Irish border. Can any of you see uh, a positive outcome uh, or, or are we looking at pretty, pretty desperate times? Okay, and then there's a, a, a chap here in the middle with a greyish jacket. Uh, John Strafford. Um, in the graphs you showed at the beginning, um, the comparisons you were making were uh, all had kind of financial implications, be it free trade, immigration, 
citizens' rights, and yet the uh, uh, polling done and the research done by Lord Ashcroft showed that the most important issue for leavers was actually taking back control and democracy. Uh, and uh, uh, why can't you make that uh, comparison uh, as well? Because uh, to answer Philip Lagrain, um, people, particularly in the north of England, wanted to have their legislators and be able to vote for them as individuals, and if they didn't like them, to be able to vote them out. In the European elections, they could only vote for a party, uh, so, uh, because of the list system that we use. Uh, so they couldn't get rid of uh, individuals they disagreed with. Uh, the commission is unelected and unaccountable to the people. The Council of Ministers meets in secret. Uh, a vote in Luxembourg is worth three times a vote in the UK. Now, when the European Union starts uh, becoming democratic, maybe the people's mood will change. Okay, that's a great question. I think Sarah's probably got something to say about that, or indeed anything else. <laughs> Um, on, on the last point, I mean, James and I actually wrote another book about uh, that point about the EU not being very accountable. So, so I don't necessarily disagree with you on that point. I will disagree with you in the sense that, uh, that this was the key reason that was debated or mobilized in the referendum. And we've done, um, in this project and in other projects, I've done quite a lot of also open-ended research trying to ask people, you know, what are the main arguments you hear? And I've studied quite a few referendums in the EU and actually often the sort of democracy argument about, you know, how is the EU government, governed, the commission and so on have been very prominent in those. And one thing that was interesting about this referendum in a sense that how the EU institution work, whether we are critical of them or not, was not a big feature. I agree with you that this sort of general sense of sovereignty, as John, I think, outlined nicely, this sense of we want to be our own sovereign nation in a kind of abstract sense was definitely one. But the criticism... Uh, of the, you know, how the commission is elected, is it unelected or not? We can have a long debate on that uh, over a drink one day. But, but that was not prominent in the referendum campaign or indeed as an argument. Uh, I think some of that sort of democracy argument is, is captured by this sort of opposition to the ECJ <laughs> having a role. But, but it's interesting that um, it is one of the referendum campaigns that perhaps had the least about how the EU actually works as a policymaking institution. That was almost ab entirely absent, uh, also from how people express their concerns. Um, if I could just say briefly about the Irish border, I, I mean, I, I simply do not know how that, uh, how that can, be, can be solved. I mean, that seems to me to be a problem for the DUP, um, which is a party which is very strongly uh, pro-Brexit, um, representing a part of the United Kingdom, which actually voted uh, to remain. Um, and it is also uh, very strongly uh, anti-hard border. Uh, and it seems to me the DUP is going to have to decide which of those it cares about uh, more. Um, although, I mean, because I mean, I'm not Irish, I mean, I don't live in Northern Ireland. I don't, I don't feel the importance of, 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 of an open border uh, in the way that uh, people there do. Uh, but it seems to me, I mean, I can't, I can't see the problem with a border like the border between uh, Norway and Sweden. I mean, that doesn't seem to be, uh, seem, seem to be a, a particular problem. But, I mean, it, it has huge symbolic importance to, to the people in, in Northern Ireland. Uh, as for Adam, Adam Smith um, and the question that we thought was going to go one way and actually ended up being about how the EU is a, a, an anti 
uh, an anti-free market conspiracy. I mean, obviously, the EU is a free market within itself, and it has, it has outer, outer borders um, with, uh, with protection uh, against the, the rest of the world. Uh, but, those, but that protectionism is actually being reduced um, uh, all the time, and it, it remains in our economic interest as a country, I think, to, to be part of a, of, a, of a single market. I mean, even, even Margaret Thatcher thought that was a good idea. Can I just say one thing on the border? I mean, I think the Norway-Sweden comparison is not the right one in that the Norway and Sweden are in one passport union and are both in the customs, uh, in the customs union. Yeah, because well, Norway's not in the customs union, but it's, it is in Schengen. Yeah, quite, and in a right. Nordic passport and union. So, it's, I mean, single, it's completely different. But yeah. one, one option, actually, which follows on from that is there has been discussions about a Northern Ireland staying in the customs union while the rest of the of Great Britain leaving exactly to avoid that border issue. But that, of course, then it... But, but that's a, unacceptable to the DUP yeah. because that would be a, a whole Ireland solution, which would be yeah. uh, unacceptable to them. And actually, DUP yeah. supporters are, generally speaking, in favour of a hard border. So, so <laughs> Protestants in Northern Ireland are very happy, actually, with a hard border. Oh, the majority right, okay. are happy with that. Catholics are overwhelmingly against it. So, of course, it just feeds into the general split within Northern Ireland. Sorry, I keep interjecting. I shouldn't do. It's Philippe. Yeah, I mean, if the UK leaves the single market and the customs union, then there will have to be uh, a border mm-hmm. either between Northern Ireland and the Republic or though this would be unacceptable to the DUP, between the island of Ireland uh, and uh, Great Britain. I mean, from a logistical point of view, obviously, it would be simpler to have it between um, uh, the island, island of Ireland uh, and um, uh, Great Britain, uh, simply because, you know, there's less traffic uh, and checks are done in any case. Um, uh, but um, I think from a political point of view, uh, and given the fact that most British people, though they say they do, don't really care about Ireland. Um, it, I think it, what we're going to end up with is with a, a hard border, and what the consequences, political and economic, are. Um, we have to hope that they're less bad than, than they might be. But I think that, that that's that's where we're going to end up. And all this sort of nonsense about kind of like um, technological solutions. Um, uh, yes, technology can make the border less intrusive, but it can't get rid of the border entirely. And there'll be, if there weren't to be a border, there would be mass smuggling uh, of uh, goods uh, as well as people. And soon you'd have Conservative MPs going, we have a backdoor to Europe. Uh, all these dastardly Europeans are bypassing our immigration controls by coming in through there. We have to put a border in. Um, so, um, uh, regrettably, and again, the Brexiteers lied, um, uh, it will happen. Uh, and um, and let's, as I said, let's hope the consequences are not as bad as, as they could be. In terms of the gentleman who spoke in Green Inc. Um, about Adam Smith, um, I mean, it's very sad. Um, presumably, uh, as a devotee of um, Adam Smith, you were keen on Margaret Thatcher, and she was the one who uh, drove forward the single market project, uh, a notable British uh, and European uh, success. And by leaving um, the EU uh, in the name uh, of uh, global free trade, it's actually the biggest act of trade vandalism uh, of uh, almost uh, any country uh, since the 1930s. Um, uh, so um, it, it's, it's very sad that you see that uh, in, in that perspective. In fact, the EU has more free trade agreements um, uh, with countries around the world um, uh, than anyone else. Of course, 
Well, like Britain, the EU is not a saint. There are protectionist interests like French farmers, indeed like British farmers. One of the interesting things we're going to see about leaving the EU is that you know, the protectionist interests in the UK, which have often hidden behind protectionist interests elsewhere, are going to be exposed. And you're going to see the National Farmers Union, who've hidden behind French farmers, suddenly saying, actually, we want protection for us. And it'll be interesting to see how um, an ostensibly pro-free trade British government is going to respond uh, to uh, the farmers and indeed the large landowners who traditionally vote conservative. Um, in terms of um, the question about democracy in the EU, of course democracy in the EU is imperfect, democracy in Britain uh, is imperfect. The idea that it doesn't take decisions democratically when there is co-decision between the European Council, which is made up of leaders, all of whom are elected, and the European Parliament, uh, all of whose members uh, are elected, I think uh, is a stretch. And the fact that you have to vote for a list um, rather than for a particular candidate is not a, fact, fa not a function of EU law. It's a UK decision. In Sweden, you can vote for a particular candidate. So that's hardly a reason to leave the EU. It's a, it's a reason to, to change the way in which you choose um, uh, your MEPs. Um, so um, if you say to me that, that you know, we, we need more democracy, um, I would say yes. If you say to me the EU is undemocratic, you simply don't know the facts. Okay. Um, we've got time for uh, at least probably one more round of questions, so why don't we take them from down here. So this lady at the front, perhaps. I still don't quite get over this early vote that you took, John Rentoul, as if people who were in favour of a second referendum could only do that because they feel then we can undo it. One can be in favour of a second referendum because one, that would complete the democratic exercise. So I would like to ask Sarah actually to tell us how unusual or usual was this kind of referendum on a constitutional question without a supermajority uh, and without and where one uh, outcome was so to speak defined, we knew what it is to be in the EU but then to vote for something that we didn't know what that would mean. So how usually is it then in such situations that one has a second round of a referendum? Okay. Um, oh, we've got this, this fellow over here. Uh, will Brexit lead to other EU members uh, deciding to take their people, deciding to take the same decision, perhaps within five to ten years? And how, how, how many uh, countries do you think uh, uh, could be involved in that? It's an interesting question. Um, Tony, is it? <laughs> um, can I ask a question about the impact of uh, the Brexit process on, or the possible impact on UK national government? I mean, this is a massive project for the UK government by which it will be judged. It's probably the biggest pol policy challenge facing Whitehall since the Second World War. And uh, many of the people involved, and commentators have made this point, are actually negotiating and trying to make changes which they themselves personally disapprove of, think it will impoverish the country, even though they're negotiating exactly that kind of deal. So I'm just wondering, at the end of all of this, how... The, the machinery of Whitehall and Westminster, having been put under this pressure, will be judged and linked to that. Whether you voted leave or remain, 
This is a massively centralised, it's the ultimate expression of the unitary state. These negotiations take place in the hands of a tiny number of people, absolutely behind closed doors. All the power goes back to London, nowhere else, to London, to the UK government. Is that what people leave or remain voted for, do you think? Okay, thanks. Let's start from the other end this time. I was always leaving you to last, Philippe. So. But I, I agree with Valtrad. I mean, it was a, it's very strange, first of all, to have a referendum in a country which has referenda very uh, rarely and therefore where there's no error, connect, error correction um, because, you know, when politicians uh, make bad decisions, even catastrophically bad ones, um, like so the poll tax under Margaret Thatcher, ultimately there's a possibility of U-turn um, and here, a catastrophically bad decision has been made, and because there isn't a tradition of having referenda in this country, the possibility of having a second referenda is dismissed, even though you're absolutely right to say, on the one hand, you had a known quantity, which was staying in the EU. On the other hand, you had a completely undefined quantity, which was leaving, where the Leave campaign didn't set out what their preferred version of, of a Leave was. And if you'd had, actually, uh, you know, the various options of Leave, it's quite likely that Remain would have both would have beaten any variant of leave. Um, so it's only because the leave was undefined that you got, got that result. Um, uh, so, but that's, that's the trap that we're in, uh, and it's just like a slow-motion car crash. You can, see, you, know, you can see the wall, and you know that you know, you're going to crash, um, and there doesn't seem to be uh, any possibility uh, to swerve uh, or uh, to reverse, which is, what, is why the situation is so gruesome. Um, in terms of will Brexit lead to other countries uh, leaving, um, well, clearly there was a fear after the Brexit referendum and even more so after the election of President Trump that the EU might be uh, swept away by, say, the election of um, Marine Le Pen in France, um, and it turned out differently. And I think, actually, Brexit is seen as such a disaster um, by most Europeans that what you've seen is that um, the parties that previously were arguing for EU exit are backtracking, and Marine Le Pen has just dropped it as um, one of the planks uh, for the National Front in France. Um, and the countries who probably have the most antagonistic relationship with the EU, who are like Poland and Hungary, there's little prospect of them leaving, uh, both because they're net recipients of EU funds massively, uh, and because despite the antagonism of their governments, the overwhelming majority uh, of the people strongly support membership of the EU. If you look at what the Eurobarometer poll shows, it shows that you know, the EU is least popular in, in Italy. Um, that probably has most to do with the, with the euro um, rather than uh, the EU itself. Uh, and clearly, you know, um, there are question marks about um, Italy's continued membership in the euro, though I'd be surprised uh, if Italy were to leave um, at the EU. The other country, of course, where it's unpopular is, is Greece. And again, that's mostly a function uh, of the euro. Um, well, I mean, yes, I, mean, I, don't, I don't think there, there will be a, a domino effect, but I do think uh, that uh, the complacency of the leadership of the EU uh, in the face of uh, the, the, the Brexit vote in this country, uh, the rise of nationalism in Poland, um, Czech Republic and, and, and Hungary, and the stresses uh, caused by the euro in, in, in Italy and Greece, I mean... This is, this, is a, I mean, this is precisely why I think the EU is such a deeply flawed uh, institution and one very good reason uh, why we should get out of it. Um, but 
you know, I mean, I, I accept that, you know, that, that's, that's very much a, a, marginal, a marginal decision. And, I, you know, I suspect the EU will probably muddle through and, and, and deal with the, the stresses and strains. But I just find, I find the, the complacency and the, the sort of utopianism of, 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 of the sort of federalist vision uh, held by Angela Merkel and all the rest of them uh, just leaves, leaves me cold. Um, the, the thing about the, the referendum, I mean, I, uh, as, I, as I said, I thought the referendum was, was, was the right decision. I mean, if you're asking for a model for a, a, a referendum which has a, has a status quo option and an undefined option, uh, we had one of those in Scotland in, in 2014. That was absolutely the right uh, decision to have in Scotland. It's the only way you can decide a constitutional question of that significance. It's what, uh, what, it's what they ought to be doing in, in Catalonia. Um, you know, if there is a demand for self-determination, then you have to put a simple, fair question to the, to the population. By definition, if you are going to change the status quo, then the, then the, end, the, you know, the end state is not going is, is to be clear, but people, people are capable of, of, of making a decision uh, on that basis. And, you know, if you've got a criticism of, of, of referendums, then the same criticisms apply to the one in 1975 that took us in, which was, to go to Tony Travis's point, I mean, that was, the, the 1975 referendum was the decision of a unitary state, um, the elite of a unitary state, um, initially in Parliament, but then endorsed, uh, endorsed by a referendum. And I think, I think the tests for the, for the British civil service once again shows its utter professionalism uh, in, you know, essentially individuals who, who overwhelmingly supported Remain uh, trying to do the best for, for the country. I mean, I know, I, I know, I know a lot of the civil servants who, who are working on, on Brexit, and, you know, I, f I find their dedication to the national interest and to the democratic uh, wishes of the, of the British people um, admirable, and I, I, I congratulate them for it. And, and the question of, of referendums, it's not unusual no, to have just normal majorities in referendums. Also, we should remember that this was an advisory uh, referendum, and therefore this is ultimately not a decision that will be taken by referendum, but by the parliament. And actually, in that sense, you could say that the fact Theresa May called a, an election was a good thing, because parties that supported taking Britain out of the European Union, including, of course, the Labour Party, you know, won by an absolute landslide, the Labour Party and the Conservative Party. So in that sense, it's a double endorsement. So it is a parliamentary decision, but even as a referendum, uh, that is not unusual to do it that way. And there was, you know, high turnout and a long campaign. So I don't think we can, you know, there might be things that we criticise for the campaign, but sort of saying that that particular referendum was uh, more problematic or unusual. It was a very big decision. We can have a long debate about whether it's a good idea to have referendums, but I don't think that was unusual. Having a second referendum, we know of course cases of having second referendums on EU referendums. We know uh, that has happened in Ireland and that has happened in Denmark where the vote was then reversed. Uh, in the, particularly in the Danish case was one where there was a vote on a deal, so in a sense there was a sort of an interesting exercise in trying to interpret what was this no about to the Maastricht Treaty. 
And I think they captured it, you know, it was about the euro, it was about political sovereignty and so on. And some of them were symbolic and some of them, I mean, at the time, I remember, you know, there's a big debate about whether in fact they were, would mean anything, but it's turned out they meant quite a lot. You know, Denmark still have these opt-outs and governments have been trying to get rid of them unsuccessfully. Um, so, uh, and so in that sense, but that was because it was interpreted that the things that this referendum was about were things that could then be negotiated. And also because there was a realization that perhaps not doing that would be leaving the EU and there was not public opinion in favor of leaving the EU. Well, here I think we have a case, and that's why I think it's important tracking these things, where there has not been really a significant shift. It's not like the Brits have seen, oh, now that it looks like it's actually happening, that's not really what we wanted. I think if that was the case, if we've seen that shift, you could say, okay, maybe we should have a vote on the deal and so on. But even with the sort of hard Brexit option put in front of them by the government, the government was elected and public opinion has not shifted. So in that sense, it's ultimately you know, parliamentary sovereignty and, and, and interpreting the vote in that referendum. So I don't think that can be seen as unusual or particularly undemocratic. Uh, on the contagion, just to add to, to the points that I, I mean, I agree with, with the points already made that, you know, sort of immediate contagion is, is not obvious. Just one sort of empirical point. We have also tracked public opinion uh, in the EU, and in fact there was a kind of quite significant Brexit bump in favour of membership. Uh, so, so, uh, so in that sense, I mean, Philippe made that point that, you know, actually people looking at it and thinking, ooh. Uh, and there I think uh, you generally have higher levels of what we would call exit Euroscepticism in Britain than, we, than in the rest of the EU. I, there are more people who sort of think, oh, let's you know, get out, clearly. There was in the referendum, but also what we see is there's clearly Euroscepticism uh, in the rest of the EU, in some countries more than others, but not necessarily. Uh, we don't see anywhere with a very clear high majority, consistent majority for actually getting out of the European Union. And some of these countries are, of course, also much closer tied to the EU, you know, with the euro and so on. So actually there we're really talking about uh, potentially quite, you know, I mean, if we think Brexit is complicated when you're outside the euro, the euro outside things, imagine what it would be like for Italy leaving. I mean, I think that would really be quite a, a sort of car crash or certainly complex scenario, yeah? Um, uh, just, uh, but I do it, although, did you call Merkel a utopian federalist? I think that's the first time. Uh, <laughs> no, I didn't. No, no, didn't you, Dan? Yeah. No, 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 I think, yeah, people, there are utopian federalists in the she's EU, <laughs> but Merkel is definitely not utopian. Uh, that she's a no, pragmatic. No, she federalist. <laughs> so, oh, so, so, so I wouldn't agree with that, but, but what I would agree with is this idea that Brexit has sort of provided in a sort of odd unifying moment uh, for the EU, but I think it's dangerous if that's used to sort of say, oh, now we can sort of just continue down the sort of merry path to federalism and not worry about that there is concerns in the public, because I think those concerns exist also in the EU 27, and thinking that, oh, now we're not in Britain, we don't have to worry. I think I agree with you on that, although not on Merkel being a utopian federalist. <laughs> Okay, well, on that note, and it's one minute to eight, so we've timed that reasonably well. Um, first of all, thanks so much for coming. I hope this was illuminating in some way or another. And can we thank the three panellists for some excellent... Uh,